Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps. Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. All right. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Welcome to another episode of MLOps Live. This is one of the exciting episodes I would love you to join live and also re-listen to because on this call, we have David Hersher, one of the community's favorites, I would say. I dare to say, in fact, and we are going to be talking about what GPT-3 means for the MLOps world. I'm your host for this episode, Steven Oladele. Yeah, just before we jump right in, I'm just going to be talking about a few housekeeping rules. So this is going to be a live Q&A. If you have any question during the call, whether that's on LinkedIn or wherever you're streaming from or in Zoom here, in Zoom here, please leave it in the chat if you want to ask it openly or send it to me as an anonymous question. And if it's on LinkedIn, please leave it in the comments of the LinkedIn stream over there. Right. So without further ado, I think we can jump right into the episode. Once again, I have here on this call, David Hesher. So David is currently the Vice President of Unusual Ventures, where they are raising the bar of what founders should expect from their venture investors. Prior to Unusual Ventures, he was a Senior Solutions Architect at Tekton. I'm sure you must have come across some of his blog articles there with Tekton. And of course, prior to Tekton, he worked as a Solutions Engineer at Determined AI and a Product Manager for the Machine Learning Platform at Ford Model Companies. David, am I missing anything? No, I think you got the good highlights. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. So in this call, once again, on this particular episode, we're going to be discussing what GPT-3 means for MLOps Live. So yeah, again, just a few housekeeping rules. If you have any questions, please leave them in the chat. Otherwise, uh, we'll be good to go and jump right into the episode. So welcome again, David. Thank you. Excited to be here. Excited to chat. All right. Yeah. Thanks uh, again. Uh, I'm just curious, just given a background, what's really your role at Unusual Ventures? Just giving a bit of more background to, to this. Yeah, so in Unusual, I focus, as you mentioned, Unusual is a venture fund. And my current focus is on our machine learning and data infrastructure investments. So I lead all the work we do thinking about the future of machine learning infrastructure and data infrastructure, a little bit about dev tools more generally. But it's sort of a continuation of, you know, I've spent five or six years now dedicated to thinking about ML infrastructure and uh, still doing that, but this time trying to figure out the next wave of it. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And you wrote a few blog posts on like the next wave of ML infrastructure. Could you sort of um, throw more light into what you're seeing there? Yeah, you know, it's been a long ML hops journey, I suppose, for a lot of us. And there have been ups and downs for me. We've accomplished an amazing number of things. There's like, when I got into this, there were not many tools and now there are so many tools and so many possibilities. And I think some of that's good and some of it's bad. I, what I, the topic of this conversation obviously is to dive in a little bit to GPT-3 and language models. And there's all this hype now about generative AI, obviously. And we'll get into the details, but I think there's this incredible opportunity to broaden the number of ML applications we can build and the set of people that can build machine learning applications thanks to recent advances in language models like ChatGPT and GPT-3 and things like that. And so then thinking about MLOps, there's new tools we can think about. There's new people that can participate. There's old tools that might have new capabilities that we can think about too. So a ton of opportunity there and then broad, but we'll get into I'm sure the nitty-gritty details of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll definitely dive into that. Now, speaking of that generative AI space, again, the core focus of this episode would be like the GPT-3. But could you sort of maybe share with us, of course, for some of us, which I highly doubt, don't know about this GPT-3 thing yet, right? Could you share a bit more about what GPT-3 means and just give a background there? <laughs> of course, you got it. So GPT-3 is related to chat GPT, which is the thing I guess the whole world's heard about now. But in general, it's a large language model, not altogether that different from language machine learning models we've seen in the past that do various natural language processing tasks. It's built on top of the transformer architecture that was released in Google from 2017. But GPT-3 and ChatGPT are sort of proprietary incarnations of that from OpenAI. 
And they're called large language models because in the last six or so years, what we've been doing largely is giving more data and making the models bigger. And as we've done that through both GPT-3 and other folks who have trained language models, we've seen these sort of amazing set of capabilities emerge with language models beyond just sort of the classical things we've associated with language processing, like sentiment analysis, but suddenly they can do more complex reasoning and really just solve a ton of language tasks very efficiently. And then maybe the most popular incarnation of that, as I mentioned, is ChatGPT, which I probably don't need to tell many people what that is, but a chatbot that is really, really surprisingly and amazingly capable at uh, having human-like conversations with folks. Awesome, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And um, just jumping right back into your role at Ejo Ventures and really talking about making the ML infrastructure sort of space accessible in there. And I'm sort of thinking, what are your thoughts on maybe just an overview, of course, so that we just give our listeners the meat of the episode straight up and then we'll try to break it down. But what are your thoughts on like GPT-3's impact on the MLOS field and how do you see changing machine learning? So let's start breaking things down from there. Heck yeah, sounds good. So I think there's a couple of really interesting pieces to tease out of what language models mean for the world of MLOps. And so maybe I want to separate it into two things. One is language models, as I said, have this amazing number of capabilities. They can solve a lot of, like a surprisingly large number of tasks without any extra work. So you need to train anything, you don't need to tune anything. Maybe you need to write a good prompt, but you can solve a lot of problems using just language models. And the nice thing about being able to take a model that someone else trained and use it is you offload a lot of ML ops to the people who are building that model. And then you get to do a whole bunch of the fun work downstream. So you don't need to worry about inference as much. You don't need to worry about versioning and data. There's all these problems that suddenly fall out and you can focus on something else. And we can get into it, but I think that broadens the, the accessibility of machine learning in a lot of cases. And it's not everything. Not every use case is going to be immediately solved. Language models are good, but they're not everything yet. But I think that's like one category to think about is if we don't need to train models anymore for some set of things, what activities are we taking part of? What are we doing and how, what tools do we need? What talents, what skills do we need to be able to build machine learning systems on top of language models? And then the, the second category to think about is how can language models complement MLOps as we know it today? Like, how can we, like, we've got all this, we are still training models. There are still a lot of cases where we do that. And I think it's worth at least commenting on what is the impact of language models on today. And some ideas around that is maybe most people probably know of GitHub Copilot, which is going to help people write code. One of the hardest things about MLOps today is a lot of data scientists aren't native software engineers, but hey, maybe we can lower the bar to software engineering, for example. There have been a lot of hype around translating natural language to things like SQL so that it's a little bit easier to do data discovery and things like that. And so... Those are, I think, like more sideshows of the conversation. There are other complementary pieces, maybe, but I think they're really still impactful when you think about, hey, is there a way that we can use these language models to lower the bar of who can actually participate in traditional MLOps too by making the software aspects more accessible, the data aspects more accessible, et cetera. Right. In this particular episode, we're going to be talking a lot about accessibility because when you talk about GPC-3 and large language models, of course, the large language models there, I mean, and some people, they're like, oh, this is like for large companies like Microsoft, OpenAI, Google and stuff. But how are you seeing sort of the trend towards being making these systems or making these models a lot more accessible for smaller organizations, early stage startups, or smaller teams that want to really leverage this stuff and put it out there to consumers? Yeah, I actually think this is maybe the most exciting thing that's come out of language models. And I'll frame it in a couple of ways. One is what I touched on before. Someone else has figured out MLOps for the large language models to some extent. They're serving them, they're versioning them, they're iterating on them, they're doing all the fine-tuning. And what that means is for a lot of companies that I work with and talk to, machine learning in this form is way more accessible than it's ever been. They don't need to go hire a person to learn how to do machine learning and learn PyTorch and figure out all of MLOps to be able to get something out the amazing thing with language models is you can kind of get your MVP out by just writing a good prompt on the OpenAI playground or something like that. Like you can, a lot of them are demos at that point. They're still not products, but I think the message is the same, which is to go from an idea to something that looks like it actually works is easy. It's so easy suddenly. And so I think that 
you know, at a, at a very surface level, the first obvious thing is every team, anybody, every JavaScript developer, every Python developer, whoever you are, you can go try something out and, and build something pretty cool. And yeah, it's not that hard, but that's great. Not hard's great. Like all we've been doing very hard work to create simple ML models for a while. And this is really cool. And the other thing I'll touch on is I think I look back to my time at Ford and a major theme that we thought about when I was at Ford was democratizing data. How can we make it so the whole company can interact with data? And I think over time, we've just been like a lot of talk about democratization. And one of the amazing things I think about language models is to some extent, they've done a little bit of democratizing data for the whole world. And maybe to explain that, when you think about what those models are, the way that GPT-3 or the other similar language models are trained is on this corpus of data called the common crawl, which is essentially the whole internet, right? So they download all of the text on the internet and they train language models to predict all of that text. And one of the side effects of that is one of the things you used to need to do the machine learning we're all used to in MLOps is a lot of data. You needed to go to collect data. You needed to instrument your product to collect data. When I was at Ford, we needed to hook things up to the car and telemetry it out and download all that data somewhere and make a data lake and hire a team of people to sort that data and make it usable. And so a blocker of doing any ML was changing cars and, and building data lakes and things like that. And one of the most exciting things too about language models is you don't need any of that. You don't need to hook up a lot of stuff. You just sort of say, please complete my text and it will do it. I think one of the bars that a lot of startups had in the past was this cold start problem. Like if you don't have data, how do you build ML? And now on day one, you can do it. Anybody can. That's really cool. And it's quite interesting because if you're not worrying about these things, then what are you worrying about as a startup? If you're not worrying about this ML of stuff and then these things have made accessible, what are you then worrying about when it comes to this sort of uh, building this sort of system? Well, I'll give like the good and then the bad. The good, the best case of what you're worrying about is what people think, right? You're customer centric. You get to, instead of worrying about who, how am I going to find another MLOps person or a data engineer, all of these talent that you can't find out there because there's not enough of them, an MLOps engineer, you can worry about building something that customers want and listening to customers and building cool features. And then hopefully you can iterate more quickly too. The other side of this that all of the VCs in the world like to talk about is defensibility. And I don't want to, we don't need to get into that, but when it's so easy to build this, then it's sort of table stakes. It stops being this like cool differentiated thing that sets you apart from your competition. If you build an incredible credit scoring model or something like that, that will make you a better insurance provider. That will make you a better loan provider or something like that. Doing text completion in your text box is kind of table stakes right now. So a lot of folks are worried about how do I actually build something that my competitors can't rip off tomorrow. But hey, that's not a bad problem to have. You can, again, I think going back to the point one, focus on what people want, how people are interacting with it. Maybe to frame it slightly different, there's all of this MLOps tooling. And the thing that's kind of at the far end is monitoring, right? Like when we think about it, it's like you ship a model and the last thing you do is you monitor it so that you can continuously update and, and lots of stuff like that. But monitoring for a lot of MLOps teams I worked with is sort of still an afterthought because they're still working on getting to the point where they have something to monitor. But monitoring is actually the cool part. Like it's where people are using your system and you're figuring out how to iterate and change it to make it better. And I, almost everybody I know that's doing language model stuff right now, they're already monitoring because they ship something in five days. And so they're working on iterating with customers now instead of trying to figure out and scratching their heads at why it's taking so long to deploy a model in the first place. And so I actually think that's like not a bad outcome that we can focus more on iterating these systems with users in mind than instead of the hard PyTorch stuff and all that. Cool. We're going to definitely be touching into most of the model management side of these large language models later on. But I'm just curious because prior to the storm of LLMs, there's this uh, wave of uh, this frenzy around data-centric AI approach to sort of building the systems and everything. I'm just kind of curious, how does this sort of approach to building your systems, building your ML systems linked to now having large language models that already have been trained on this vast amount of data. But then again, you probably might be worried of, about things like data quality issues and things being fine-tuned to your problem and so forth. How are these two sort of really, how, how can these two sort of be consolidated into building an entire system based on principles and processes and stuff? Yeah, I guess one thing I want to call out maybe is I think some of the machine learning that's the least likely to be replaced by language models in the short term is some of the most data-centric stuff. 
So when I was at Tecton, that they, they built a feature store, I'm sure a lot of folks know. And a lot of the problems we were working on are things like fraud detection and recommendation systems and credit scoring and things like that. And it turns out the hard part of all of those systems is not the machine learning part, it's the data part, almost always. Like you need to know a lot of small facts about your users and, and the world and things like that, in really short amounts of time and use all that data to synthesize an answer. And in that sense, like, if the hard part of a problem is data still, because you need to know what would someone just click on or what's the last five things someone bought, then those problems aren't going away. You still need to know all of that information. You need to be focused on understanding and working with data. And in fact, like I'd be surprised if language models had almost any impact on some of that. So I guess like the first thing I'd say is let's not throw any of that out because I think there's a lot of cases where the hard part is just being able to have the right data to make decisions. And in those cases, being data centric, asking questions about what data you need to collect, what data, like how to turn that into features and how to use that to make predictions. Those are the right questions to ask. On the language model side of things, the data question is interesting. Like I think you need potentially a little bit less focus on data to get started. You maybe don't need to curate and think about everything, but you need to ask questions about how do people actually use this and all the monitoring questions we talked about. Like, are people, you think about ChatGPT and it has a little thumbs up or thumbs down button, that's important data so you can fine tune and iterate. A lot of folks that are building something that is just chatbots need to build like product analytics to be able to track what are users' responses to this generation or whatever we're doing and things like that. So data is really important for those still. We can get into it, but it, it certainly has a different texture than it used to because it's like data is not a blocker to build features with language models as often anymore. It's maybe an important part to keep improving, but it's not a blocker to get started like it used to be. Awesome. And I'm trying not to lose my train of thought for the other MLOps components side of things, but I just wanted to give a bit of context again as to maybe from your experience, how are people, how are startups, how are you know companies already leveraging these LLMs to really ship products out fast? Have you seen use cases you want to share based on your time with them? Unusual? Yeah, I mean, man, it's almost everything. You'd be amazed at how many things are out there. So maybe just like a handful of obvious use cases of language models that are out there. And then we'll talk about maybe some of the like quick shipping things too. There are tools that help you write lots of those, for example. So lots of folks building things that'll help you write copy for marketing or blogs or whatever, but Jasper and Copy AI and folks like that. And those have been around the longest, I think, because they're maybe the easiest thing to implement with, with a language model. There's amazing things out there of helping you take like like language models that take actions is one of the coolest things that's going on right now. So a handful of folks that are building like agents that take tasks in natural language and can go actually send an email or hit an API or like actually do things. That's nascent. There's more work going on there, but it's neat. A lot of folks working on search and semantic retrieval and things like that. So if I want to look for a note, suddenly you can get a much more rich understanding of how to search through large information. And along with that, like knowledge management and understanding all like being able to find information. Language models are just really good at digesting and understanding information in general. So that's cool. And so I mean, like I give broad answers because nearly every industry product has some opportunity, I think, to incorporate or improve a feature with language models, we see a lot of them. So it's sort of amazing. Like it's hard. I, every time I think about this, my brain kind of blows up because there's just too many. Like there's so many things out there to do and not enough time in the day to do them all. So I hear about new use cases nearly every day, it feels like. Cool. And, and these are like dev tool related use cases, yeah? Like dev tooling and stuff. Beautiful developers or? I think there's all sorts of things out there. But in terms of thinking mm-hmm. like on, on the dev tool side, you know, there's Copilot, which helps you write code faster. And there's a lot of things like even like make pull requests. Like I've seen tools that help you write and author pull requests more efficiently that help automate building documentation. Like I think the whole universe of how we develop software to some extent is also ripe to change. So along those lines, exactly. Yeah. And when we come back to the MLOps side of things, and you did mention something about modern, right? And how you sort of seen 
folks monitor these models? Because usually I think when we talk about the ML platform or MLOps, these are like tightening it across different components. Like you have your feature store, you have your model registry, and it's kind of like this workflow where you've gotten your data from like a data lake or something, moved it across this workflow, you've modeled it and stuff, and now you've deployed it. And now there's a very, very good link between your development environment as well as the production environment where it's monitored. But in this case now where LLMs have almost eliminated the development side, how are you sort of finding folks monitoring the systems more efficiently in production, especially replacing it with other models, uh, other systems out there? Yeah, it's funny. I think monitoring is one of the hardest challenges for the language models now because we eliminated the development. Now it becomes challenge number one. And maybe even to expand on the challenges before we get into the solutions, with most of the machine learning we've done in the past, the output is structured. It's like a number. It's like, is this a cat or not? Or is this a hot dog? You know, like whatever you want to say. And so monitoring was pretty easy. You sort of look at that number. And if that number, like how often you're predicting that it's a cat or not, is changing over time, then maybe something's wrong. With language models, the output is a sentence or something, right? It's not a number. So measuring how good a sentence is, is actually really hard. Like it's just a challenging problem. Like it's not, is this number above point? Nine five or something like that. It's is the sentence authoritative and nice and are we friendly and are we not toxic? Are we not biased and and all these questions that are actually way harder to evaluate and harder to track and measure. And so, what are people doing? I think the first response for a lot of folks is to go to something like product analytics. It's closer to like tools like Amplitude than it was classic tools where you just generate something and you see if people like it or not. <laughs> do they click? Do they click off the page? Do they stay there? Do they accept this generation? Things like that. But man, that's a really coarse metric. Like that's a tough, like that doesn't give you nearly the detail of understanding the internals of a model. But it's really what people are like, it's the only, there aren't really great answers out there to that question yet. Like, how do you monitor these things? How do you keep track of how good my model's doing besides looking how users interact with it? And so I think it's an open challenge for a lot of people. And we know a lot of, ML monitoring tools out there. I'm hopeful that some of our favorites will iterate into being able to more directly help with these questions. But I also think there's an opportunity for new tools to emerge that help us say, how good is the sentence and and help you measure that before you ship a model and after you ship a model and over time so you can be confident. Because yeah, right now, I mean, maybe to give you an anecdote, the most common way I've heard people say they ship new versions of prompts or models is they have five or six prompts that they test on and then they check with their eyes if the output looks good and they ship it. <laughs> that show is killing. That's killing. Ironic. <laughs> I mean, sarcastic. <laughs> yes. So I don't think that will last forever where people are just happily looking at five examples with their eyes and hitting the ship to production side of the error button. That's bold. But, you know, there's so much hype right now that people will ship anything, I guess, but it won't take long for that to change. Yeah, absolutely. And just a step more for that, because I think even before the large language model frenzy, when it was just the, the basic transformers we had, like I think most companies that deal with this sort of systems would usually find a way to close the active learning loop. And is it the same? Is it quite different when you're using like these large language models that are not hosted on your own infrastructure or something? You're using an API for somewhere. How can you find a way to close that active learning loop where you're continuously refining that system or that model? with your own data set as it comes bigger and better? I think this is an active challenge still for a lot of folks, and not everybody's figured it out. OpenAI has a fine-tuning API, for example. Others do too, where you can collect data and they'll make a fine-tuned endpoint. And so I've talked to a lot of folks that go down that route eventually, either to improve their model, more commonly actually to improve the latency performance. Like if you can, GPT-3 is really large and expensive. And if you can fine-tune a cheaper model to be similarly good, but much faster and cheaper. And I've seen people go down that route. I have a feeling over time, like we're, we're really in the early days of using these language models. And I have a feeling over time, that active learning component is still going to be just as, if not more important to refine models. And you hear a lot of people talking about like per user fine-tuning, right? Like, can you have a model per user that knows my style and things like that better or what I want or or whatever it may be. And so I think that it's a good idea for anybody that's using these right now to be thinking about that active learning loop today before they even, even if it's hard to execute on today, like you can't 
take, you can't download the weights of GPT-3 and fine tune it yourself. Even if you could, there's all sorts of challenges of fine tuning a 175 billion parameter model. But I expect that the data that you collect now to be able to continuously improve is going to be really important in the long run. So, yeah, that's quite interesting to see how the field sort of evolves in that sense. So, at this point, we'll jump right into some of the community questions that we have sort of pre submitted. Again, if you're on the call, if you have any questions, please leave them in the chats and the Zoom chats. If you're streaming from LinkedIn, please leave them in the comments as well. We'll do well to get them to David here. So the first question from the community, and this person asks, is GPT-3 an opportunity or a risk for MLOps practitioners? I think opportunities and risks are two sides of the same coin in some ways, is I guess what I would say. <laughs> uh, so I'll cop out and say both. I guess to start with the risk is, I think it's hard to imagine that a lot of the workloads that we used to rely on training models to do where you, you had to do the whole MLOps cycle, you won't anymore. Maybe to expand, like we talked about language models can't do everything right now, but they can do a lot. And there's no reason to believe they won't be able to do more over time. And if we have these general purpose models that can solve lots of things, then why do we need MLOps? Like we're doing like, there's no reason, if we're not training models, then a lot of MLOps goes away. And so there's a risk that if you aren't paying attention to that, the amount of work out there to be done is going to go down. Now, the good news is, there aren't enough MLOps practitioners today to begin with, not even close, right? And so I don't think we're going to shrink to a point where the number of MLOps practitioners today is too many for how much MLOps we need to do in the world. So unless we're, I wouldn't worry too much about it, I guess is what I would say. But the other side of it is like, there's a whole bunch of new stuff to learn. Like, what are the challenges of building language model applications? There are, there are a lot of them. There's a lot of new tools. And I think looking forward at a couple of the community questions, I think we'll get into it. But think there's a real opportunity to be a person that understands that and maybe even to push that a little bit further you can use language model. like if you're an mlops person but not a data scientist like if you're like an engineer that helps people build push miles production maybe you don't need the data scientist anymore maybe the data scientist should be worried maybe you the mlops person can build the whole thing you're a full stack engineer suddenly in a sense where you get to build ml models by building on top of language models and build the infrastructure around them and the software around them and do the whole thing. And I, I think that's a real opportunity like you, to be a full stack practitioner of building language model powered applications. You're well positioned. You understand how ML systems work and, and you can do it. So I think that's an opportunity. That's a really good point. And we have a question in chat. I would just want to rephrase um, Zubara's question a bit. And in this age of large language models, what should MLOps practitioners actually learn what should they sort of prioritize when it comes to I'm trying to gain the skills as a beginner or maybe as a practitioner, I'm trying to evolve my existing skills. What would you recommend that they learn at this point? Yeah, good question. So I don't want to be too radical, which is to say a lot of the, as we talked before, there's a lot of use cases, a lot of use cases of machine learning out there that aren't going to be impacted drastically by language models. We're still like fraud detection and things like that. These are still things where someone's going to go train a model on our own proprietary data and all of that. And so if you're passionate about MLOps and the development and training and full life cycle of machine learning, learn the same MLOps curriculum as you would have learned before. We get into it. I have a lot of suggestions. I could talk for an hour about that. I'm sure you talked for many hours about that in the podcast in the past, so we don't need to dive in. But I think learn software engineering best practices and, and understand how ML systems get built and productionized, and that's good. Maybe I'd complement that by like, it's simple, but just go to the GPT-3 playground by OpenAI and play around with a model. Try to build a couple of use cases. There's lots of demos out there, like build something. It's easy. I mean, you wouldn't believe how easy it is. I have personally, I'm like a VC. I am barely technical anymore. And I've built like four or five of my own like apps to play with and use in my spare time. It's ridiculous how easy it is. You wouldn't believe it. And so... Just build something with language models. It's easy. You'll learn a lot. You'll be amazed probably at how simple it is. I have something that like takes transcripts of my calls and writes call summaries for me. I have something that like takes a paper and I can ask questions against that paper, like a research paper, things like that. Those are simple applications, but you'll learn something. And I just I think it's a good idea to be somewhat familiar with what it feels like to build and iterate with these things right now. And it's fun too. So I highly recommend anybody in the MOS field try it out. I know it's your free time, but it, it should be fun. Awesome. So focus on shifting stuff. Uh, that's, thanks for the suggestion. So let's jump right into the next question from the community. And this person asked, what are the best options to host large language models at a reasonable scale? Ooh, this is a tough one. 
get a little technical quickly and then pull out. One of the hardest things about language models is somewhere in like the 30 billion parameter range. So GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters. Somewhere in the 30 billion parameter range, a model starts fitting on the biggest GPUs we have today. So the biggest GPU on the market today in terms of memory is the A100 with 80 gigabytes of memory. GPT-3 does not fit on that. Like you can't inference GPT-3 on a single GPU. And so what does that mean is like, oh, it gets really horribly complicated really fast to, to do inference of a model that doesn't fit on a single GPU. You have to do like model parallelism and it's a nightmare. And so like my short advice is like, don't try unless you really have to, like don't try. There are better options. The good news is like a lot of people are working on taking these models and turning them into form factors that fit on a single GPU. So for example... We're recording on February 28th. I think it was like yesterday or last Friday that the Llama paper from Facebook came out. They changed a language model that does fit on one GPU and has similar capabilities to GPU-3. There are others like it that are 5 billion parameter models up to like 30. And so I think that's the most promising approach we have is to try to find a GPU that or a model that does fit on a single GPU. And then use the tools that we've used for all historical model deployment to host them. So you can pick your favorite. There are lots out there. The folks at Bento have a great serving product. A lot of other people do. You need to make sure you get a really big, beefy GPU to put it on uh, still. But I think no, it's not much different at that point, as long as you pick something that does fit on, on one machine, at least. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And the next question is, LLMFs is becoming mainstream. What are the new challenges that it addresses better than MLOps for like NLP use cases? And do you think like LLMFs? So does that actually sort of a merit to tone acronym or these two has to be like under the field of MLOps in quotes? Man, I feel like this is a landmine. I'm going to make some people angry <laughs> as soon as I, no matter what I say here. It's a good question though. There's an easy version of this, which is we talked about it for a lot of building ML or applications on top of language models. You don't need to train a model anymore. You don't need to host your own model anymore. You don't need to, all of that goes away. And so it's like easy in a sense, like there's just a whole bunch of stuff you don't need to build language models. And so then the question is like, what do I need? And what are the new questions I need to answer? And what are the new workflows that we're talking about? If it's not training and host and serving and testing and all that. So what are the new workflows? Prompting is a new workflow. If you use the language model much, like it's funny. I've talked to some folks. Building a good prompt is like a really simple version of building a good model. It's really experimental still. So you try a prompt and it works or it doesn't work. You tinker with it until it works or doesn't work. It's almost like tuning hyperparameters in a way. Like you see, if that makes sense, like you're tinkering and tinkering and trying stuff and building stuff until you come up with a prompt that you like and then you push it or whatever. And so some folks are focused on like prompt experimentation. And I think that's like a valid way to think about how do you, you know, if you think about weights and biases is experimentation for models. How do you have a similar tool for experimentation on prompts? Keep track of versions of prompts and what worked and, and all of that. I think that's a, like a tooling category of its own. And whether or not you think prompt engineering is a lesser form of machine learning it's certainly something that warrants its own set of tools and is a completely new... <laughs> it's certainly different from all of the MLOps we've done before. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity to think about that workflow and to improve it. We touched on evaluation and monitoring and some of the new challenges that are unique to evaluating the quality of the output of a language model compared to other models. There are similarities between that and monitoring historical ML models, but there are things that are just uniquely different, I think. like The questions we're asking are different. As I said, a lot of it is like product analytics. Do you like this or not? A lot of the goal of what you capture might be to be able to fine-tune the model in a slightly different way than it was before. So you, know, you can say, like, we know about monitoring in ML ops, but I think there are at least new questions we need to answer about how to monitor language models, for example. And so I guess like maybe to distill this all into a really simple thing, What's similar? It's experimental and probabilistic. Like, why do we have ML ops as opposed to DevOps? This is the question you could ask first, I guess. And it's because like ML has this weird set of like probabilities and distributions and stuff that is like acts different from traditional software. And that's still the same. So in some sense, like there's a big overlap of similarity because a lot of what we're doing is figuring out how to work with probabilistic software. 
what's different. We don't need to train models anymore and we do need to write prompts and the challenges of hosting and interacting are different. And so it doesn't warrant a new acronym. Maybe just the fact that saying LLM ops is such a pain <laughs> in the butt. It means we shouldn't be trying to do it in the first place. But regardless of acronyms or not, there are certainly some new challenges that we need to address and some old challenges that we don't need to address as much. So we're thinking about it at least. Yeah, that's such a good point. Thank you for sharing that because definitely the acronym has to be reviewed. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, that's really hard to pronounce. All right. So the next question from the community here. And by the way, I just wanted to touch on like the experimentation part of like, I know like developers are already taking notes, right? Building experimentation tools for prompts. And a lot of prompt engineering is happening. I mean, yeah, even it's that's actually actively becoming a role. I see, you know, you, I think in scale, they actually advanced prompt engineers, which is like incredible in, in itself. <laughs> and prompt and custom posting for it too. It's easier to become a prompt engineer than it is to maybe become an ML person. <laughs> I have, maybe I'm just saying that because I have a degree in machine learning and I don't have a degree in prompting, but <laughs> it's certainly a skill set. And I think managing and working with it is a good skill to have. And it's a clearly a valuable one. So Absolutely. Uh, why not? Absolutely. So, right, let's check the other question. Also, oh, we have a question from LinkedIn, and this person asks Does GPT 3 need to involve like any form of orchestration or maybe pipelining? And yeah, because from their understanding, they feel like MLOps is like an orchestration sort of process than anything else. Yeah, I think there are two ways to think about that. So, there's like the batch side. So, there are use cases of language models that you could imagine happening in batch, take all of the reviews of my app and pull out relevant user feedback and report them to me or something like that, right? And so for something like that, there's still all of the same orchestration challenges of grab all the new data, all the new reviews from the app store, pass them through a language model in parallel or in sequence or whatever it is, collect that information and then stick it out wherever it needs to go. And nothing has changed there. It's if you had your model hosted at an endpoint internally before, now you have it hosted at the OpenAI endpoint externally. Who cares? Same thing. No challenge, no changes. Challenges are about the same. At inference time, you'll hear a lot about people talking about things like chaining and things like that in language models. And the core insight there is a lot of the use cases we have actually involve going back and forth with a model a lot. So I write a prompt. The language model says something back based on what the language model says back. I send another prompt to clarify or to, to move some direction. That's an orchestration problem. Fundamentally, like getting data back and forth from a model a few times is an orchestration problem. So yeah, there are certainly orchestration challenges with language models. Some of them look just like before. Some of them are kind of net new. I think the tools we have to orchestrate are the same tools we should keep using. So if you're using Airflow, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. If you're using Kubeflow pipelines, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. If you're doing those live things, maybe we want slightly new tools, like what people are using Langchain for now. It looks really similar to a lot of orchestration things like Temporal or other things that help with orchestration and workflows in general too. So yeah, I think that's a good insight though. There's there's a lot of good like similar work of just like meaning gluing all of these systems together to work when they're supposed to. That still needs to be done. And then it's software engineering kind of, you know, it's like building something that always like does the set of things you need to do and always does it and you can rely on. And, and whether that's ML ops or DevOps or whatever it is, building reliable computational flows, that's good software engineering. So heck yeah. Yeah. And also just speaking on that line of the orchestration parts. So are there other maybe like, because I know like ML ops has its own principles itself. You talk about reproducibility, which might be a hard problem to solve and talk about collaboration. Are there sort of ML ops principles that need to be followed to sort of make this an actual, like make the potentials of these large language models utilized properly for teams building the systems? Good question. I think we're early to like actually know, but I think there's some similar questions. Like, you know, a lot of what we've learned from ML ops and DevOps are both like all are just giving kind of principles of how to do this. And so at the end of the day, like a lot of what I think of this being for both ML ops and DevOps is software engineering to some extent. It's like, can we build stuff that's maintainable and reliable and reproducible and scalable? Like a lot of the questions we want to build products essentially. And and so maybe like specifically for language model ops, like you probably want to version your prompts. It's a similar thing. Like you want to keep track of the versions and as they change, you want to be able to roll back. And if you have the same version of prompt and the same and zero temperature on the model, like that's reproducible. It's the same thing. 
again, like the scope of challenges is kind of smaller innately. So I don't think there's a lot of new stuff we necessarily need to learn, but I need to think more about it, I guess, because I think there's, I'm sure there will be a playbook of all of the things we need to follow for language models moving forward, but I think nobody's written it yet. So maybe one of us should go do that. Yeah, an opportunity. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, David. The next question from the community, this person asks, are there le- regulatory and compliance requirements that small dev tool teams should be aware of when embedding generative AI models into services for users? Yeah, good question. So a range of things that I think are probably worth like considering. I will caveat that I'm not a lawyer, and so please don't take my advice and run with it because it's I don't know everything. A few vectors, though, of like challenges. One is OpenAI is an external service. Like, and a lot of the folks that host language models right now are external services. So we're sending data, period, to those services. There's a apparently because of the active changes that they're doing to ChatGPT, you can now get proprietary Amazon source code out of ChatGPT because Amazon engineers have been using like sending their code to ChatGPT and it's been fine-tuned and now you can sort of back it out. And so like that's a good reminder that you're sending your data to someone else when you use an external service. And that obviously, like depending on legal or just company implications of that, might mean that. You shouldn't do that. And you may want to consider hosting on, on site. And there's all sorts of challenges that come with that then. Additionally, like in the European Union, the EU AI Act should pass this year. And it has pretty strict things to say about introducing bias to models and measuring bias and things like that. And in particular, when you don't own a model, I think it's just worth being aware of that these models certainly have a long history of producing bias or toxic content. And there could be compliance ramifications for not testing and being aware of it. And I think that's probably a new set of challenges that we're going to have to face of how can you make sure that when you're generating content, you're not generating toxic content or biased content or taking biased actions because of what's being generated. And so we are used to a world where we own the data that's used to train these models so we can hopefully iterate and try to scrub them of biased things. If that's not true, certainly new questions you need to ask about how or is it's even possible to use these systems in a way that's compliant with the evolving landscape of legislation. But in general, AI legislation is still pretty new. So I think a lot of people are going to have to figure out a lot of things, especially when the EU AI Act passes when it does. Right. And you mentioned something really interesting, and that's like the model testing part itself. Has any tool figured that out? Has any maybe like dev tool, startup, or something figured that part of LLMs yet? Lots of people trying. Like I know people trying. There are interesting... So yeah, there, are, there are measures that people, like in metrics that people have built yeah, in academia to like measure toxicity, for example, right? Is this toxic? Is this a toxic output? And those events are peer-reviewed and, and looked at. And so like, I think there are methods and measures out there to evaluate the output of text. There have been similarly like tests for like gender bias and things like that that have historically applied this. So there are methods out there. There are folks that are using models to test models. So like you can use a language model to look at the output of another language model and just say, like, is this hateful or discriminatory or something like that? And they're pretty good at that, actually. It's funny if you ask another model to criticize a model, it turns to be pretty good at that. So I guess like the short version is we're really early and, and I don't think like there's a single tool I can point someone to to say, like, here's the way to do all of your evaluation and testing. But there are certainly like the building blocks in their raw form out there right now to try to work on some of this at least. But it's hard right now. I think it's one of the biggest active challenges for people to figure out right now. Yeah, because what you talk about like a model evaluates another model, I my mind just crossed like, for example, like teams using like monitoring on those ability platforms, just having models actively do the, the, the evaluation itself. It's is probably a really, really good business space to sort of look into for these tools there. Thank you for sharing that, David. And I'm just going to jump right into the next question. And I think it's really all about the optimization part of things, right? Because we, that, there's a reason we call them LLMs. And you spoke to a couple of tools, a recent one from Facebook, Llama, that has been doing this. But how are you see, how are we sort of going to see more generative AI models be optimized for like resource sort of constraint developments over time? Yeah, where there's like limited resources, but you want to host it on 
Yeah, I think this is really important, actually. I think it's like probably one of the more important trends that we're going to see. And people are working on it still early, but there are a lot of reasons to care about this. One is cost. It's very expensive to operate thousands of GPUs to do this. So it's really important for cost. One is latency. It's really important to build things that can... If you're building a product that interacts with a user... Every millisecond of latency loading your page is impacts their experience. And so that's really, really important. And the other is just like you're in environments that you can't have a GPU. Like you can't carry a cluster around in your phone or whatever it is or wherever you are to do everything. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot of development happening in the image generation. There's been an incredible amount of progress in a few short months on, on improving the performance my MacBook can generate images pretty quickly now. Language models are bigger and more challenging still. So I think there's a lot more work to be done. But there's a lot of promising techniques that I've seen folks use, like using a very large model to generate data to tune a smaller model to accomplish a task. So for example, like if the biggest model from OpenAI is really good at some task, but the smallest one isn't. But you can just have the biggest one do that task 10,000 times, fine-tune the smallest one to get better, or a smaller one to get better at that task. So the components are there, but this is another place where I don't think we have all of the tooling we need yet to solve this problem. And it's one of the places that I'm the most excited about is how can we make it easier and easier for folks to take the capabilities of these really big, impressive models and tune them down into a form factor that makes sense for their cost or latency constraints or environmental constraints. Yeah, and it does seem like the way we think about active learning as a technique is in fact changing over time because if you can have a large language model, like fine-tune a smaller one or train a smaller one, sort of, that's an incredible chain of events going on there. Thank you for sharing that, David. So I'm just going to jump right into the next community question. And this person asks, what kind of industries do you think would benefit the most from GPT-3's language generation capabilities? And how can they integrate it? I know you've touched on that, but maybe specific options, yeah. So there's like, maybe to start with the obvious, and then we'll get into less obvious, because I think that's that's easy. Any content generation, it should be complemented by, by language models now. So that's obvious, but like copywriting, marketing, those are fundamentally different industries now than they used to be. And it's obvious why. It's way cheaper to produce quality content than it's ever been. You can build customized quality content in no time at infinite scale almost. And so it's hard to believe that nearly every aspect of that industry shouldn't be somewhat changed and somewhat quickly be adopting language models. And we've seen that largely to date. There's people that will generate your product descriptions and your product photos and your marketing content and your copy and all that. And that's no mistake that that's the biggest and obvious breakout because it's a big, obvious fit. Moving downstream, I think things get... Like my answer gets a little bit worse, which is that like everybody should probably like take a look at how they can use a language model. But the use cases are probably less obvious. Like not everybody needs a chat bot. Not everybody needs to have autocomplete of text or something like that. But whether it means that your software engineers are more efficient because they're using Copilot, whether it means that you have better internal search of your documentation or your own documentation of your product has better search capabilities because you can index it with language models, that's probably true for most people in some form. And once you get more complicated, and as I said, there's opportunities to do things like automate actions or do other automation you start to get into sort of like a whole can of forms of nearly everything. So I guess there's like what I'd separate out into is there's stuff that's like obviously completely transformed by language models, which is like anywhere where content's being generated, it should be like completely transformative in some sense. And then there's a really long tail of potential augmentative changes that apply across nearly every industry. Right. Thanks for sharing that. And just two final questions before we sort of wrap up the session. Then. And one of them is like, are there tools that you're seeing uh, really changing the landscape now that folks should be aware of right now, especially on the that's really making the deployment of these models easier? Well, we're complaining about LLM ops. I'll call out <laughs> a few of the folks that are uh, working in that space and doing cool stuff. So probably like the biggest takeoff tool to help people with prompting and orchestrating prompts and things like that is LangChain. 
it's gotten really popular. They have Python, a Python library and a JavaScript library now. They're iterating at an incredible rate. That community is really amazing and vibrant. So check that out if you're trying to get started and tinker. I think it's like the best place to get started. Other tools like Dust and GPT Index are there in a similar space to help you write and then build like prototypes of actually interacting with language models. Some cool stuff around. We talked a lot about evaluation and, and monitoring. And I think uh, there's a company called Human Loop, a company called Honeyhive that are both in that space, as well as like four or five companies in the current YSC batch, which maybe they'll get mad at me for not calling them out individually, but they're all building really cool stuff there. So a lot of new stuff coming out around the evaluation and managing prompts and things like that, managing costs and everything. And so I'd say like take a look at those tools and maybe familiarize yourself with like what the new things that we need to help with are. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, David. Definitely leave those in the show notes as well for the later podcast episode that will be released. Any final words, David, on like the future of MLOps with GPT-3 and GPT on the horizon, GPT-4 on the horizon? <laughs> I guess I'll quickly say that like this is the most excited I've ever been. I've been working on MLOps for years and years now. And this is the most excited I've ever been because I think this is the opportunity we have to go from a niche field, like a relatively niche field, to impacting everybody and every product. And so that's going to change and there's a lot of differences. But for the first time, I feel like ML really... I've been hoping that ML ops would make it so that everybody in the world could use ML to change their products. And this is the closest I feel like we are, where by lowering the bar at entry, everybody can do it. And so I think we have a huge opportunity to bring ML to the masses now. And I hope that as a community, we can all make that happen. Great. I hope so as well, because I'm also excited about the landscape in, in and of itself. So thank you so much, David. Where can people find you and connect with you online? Yeah, both LinkedIn and Twitter are great. I'm David S. Hershey on, on Twitter and David Dash Hershey on LinkedIn. So please reach out, shoot me a message anytime. Happy to chat about language models, MLOps, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Awesome, awesome. So here at MLOps Live, we'll be back again in two weeks. And in two weeks time, we are going to be talking with Leanne. How and we're going to be really discussing how you can navigate organizational barriers by doing MLOps. So lots of MLOps stuff on the horizon. So don't miss out on that one. So thank you so much, David, for joining the session. We appreciate your time. I appreciate your work as well. So really great to have you on board. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Awesome. So hi, everyone. Bye. And uh, take care. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Yeah.